From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Should people convicted of certain kinds of stalking, like when it happens online, be sent to prison? Or does that violate the Constitution? The U.S. Supreme Court will consider this Colorado case. They're specifically taking up what is a quote-unquote true threat. Like, what is the standard of threatening speech versus someone's First Amendment rights? CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry helps us understand the stakes. Then, as rural Coloradans struggle with mail delivery, the fascinating history of the Postal Service, we shatter myths around the Pony Express and learn how post offices help displace indigenous people. The U.S. Post functioned as a network that was kind of everywhere. It was oftentimes one of the first government institutions to appear on the ground as settlers moved into new places. The vast majority of CPR's funding comes from our community, and over half of that comes from individual contributions. That's why your gift at any amount matters. Start your all-important membership now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Should people convicted of certain kinds of stalking, like when it happens online, be sent to prison? That's what the U.S. Supreme Court will decide as it hears a second free speech case from Colorado. Some say the state law that allows incarceration violates First Amendment rights. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry has been looking into this case. Hi, Allison. Hi, Ryan. And tell us about the case that's at the heart of this challenge. Well, it's a simple stalking case, really. A singer-songwriter whose name is C.W. in court documents is based in Colorado. She started receiving Facebook messages back in 2014 from a man she hadn't met, didn't know. Over two years, he sent her more than 1,000 messages. Oh, goodness. Some were creepy, some kind of menacing. Some were offering her garden tomatoes. I mean, it was it was like it ran the gambit. They escalated at times. At some point, he got frustrated that she wasn't responding to him, and so he told her to die. She kept blocking him from her Facebook accounts, and he would just create a new profile, send her another message. She found out that this man, Billy Raymond Counterman, was on federal probation on another harassment case, and so she got even more scared. She canceled concerts. She told investigators she started drinking, using marijuana more because she was so afraid. Eventually, she reported him to police. He was arrested in Denver. He was charged with stalking in Arapahoe County and convicted in 2016. He served two years in prison and then another year on parole. Okay. So it stands out uh, in what you said there that he told her to die. Mm-hmm. Counterman has already been convicted of stalking and has served time. So it's not like I shouldn't be in prison. It's I shouldn't have been in prison. Correct. This is all sort of past tense at this point. But at that time, during those court proceedings in 2016, his public defenders filed a motion asking the judge to dismiss the case on the grounds that the charges violated his First Amendment rights and state constitutional rights. Um, The judge denied it, but planted the seed as to where we are now. Hmm. So his attorneys were arguing that all of this was within his rights. Right. Free speech rights. Right. Because remember, it was all online. He Uh wasn't, like, driving by her house that we know of. Yeah. And and so given the volume, given the nature of the comments, okay, how did this wind up in front of the Supreme Court, Allison? 
While his sentence was appealed by the public defenders and went up to the Colorado Court of Appeals, where those judges agreed that his conviction was legal, that his speech and all of those Facebook messages was not protected by the First Amendment, the state Supreme Court declined to rule on the case. So it didn't reach Colorado's highest court. Correct, which is interesting only if you're a lawyer listening to this because you know (laughs) how rare it is for the U.S. Supreme Court to take a lower state court case. And they almost never, ever do this. They almost never take cases from even state Supreme Courts. This is even like the lower court from that. Yeah. And they're specifically taking up what is a true, a quote unquote, true threat. Like what is the standard of threatening speech versus someone's First Amendment rights? Okay. How does the singer mm-hmm. who uh, was stalked, CW, mm-hmm. feel about this case now? I mean, presumably she'd kind of put a bow on this. Correct. Yeah. You know, I've been communicating with her sister, who is kind of her spokeswoman at the moment. The singer-songwriter has moved to an undisclosed location. And frankly, I think this whole thing is a pretty large surprise for her. She was taken aback that her case is now going to be heard in such a high-profile platform. Obviously, she has concerns about what that means for her own safety again at this moment. Um, She's greatly curtailed her performance career. And she is undecided on whether she'll actually go to the high court and listen to the oral arguments. What is the state of Colorado's arguments? This is something the attorney general would do? So the state attorney general's office will be arguing this case on behalf of the state. You know, they defend the state's laws. It's kind of their job. And they'll say, basically, what happened to Counterman, his sentence, his conviction, was the right legal standard that his speech should not be protected under the First Amendment. Here is Attorney General Phil Weiser. I also think it's worth noting in our society, we're at a time of increasing threatening discourse and violence in ways that leave people feeling less safe in some cases. The importance of allowing prosecutions like this case against CW is it's protecting people before the harm to them gets even worse. They'll argue that because CW felt threatened and because the speech was delivered in a consistent, badgering, even menacing way, that he should be convicted of stalking. And she tried to block him and he kept kind of finding her again. Yeah, I'm actually glad you brought that up because that's part of this case. There was never any message or, you know, mixed message that she wanted this. Mm -hmm. You know, she wasn't responding to him at all. She was obviously blocking him. She was taking actions, which is important as a legal standard. She was taking actions to try to protect herself. What do Counterman's attorneys say? So there are counterman's attorneys, and then there are the free speech libertarian advocates nationally following this on the bigger free speech principles. Counterman's attorney, a Washington, D.C.-based guy who's got experience arguing cases in front of the high court, will say that counterman never intended for any of the speech to be threatening, that there were some mental illness problems, and that he never intended to threaten her. Here's John Elwood, counterman's attorney, who will argue in front of the high court. I think it really highlights the kind of errors that can happen here, that Mr. Counterman had mental health issues. I mean, you can understand in certain circumstances where the words coming out of somebody's mouth, that he really did not understand them to be uh, stating a threat. So you heard me stress earlier the word intended. Yeah, because do that, intentions matter? Right. That legal standard. Exactly. 
is like who decides what he intended to do? Do the cops like look at these messages and say, oh, he intended to hurt her? You know, does a judge look at these? Does a, like who is deciding the intentioning, I guess, to put it a little bit clumsily? Yeah, but or, or is it the victim who says, well, this is how his intentions felt to me? Right. In the standards, there will always be the requirement that the victim felt victimized, right? Mm. No one is ever going to be able to decide this was threatening speech, even if the person receiving these didn't feel threatened, then that's never going to be against the law, Uh you know? And as you mentioned, there are some other bigger free speech groups following this. Right. Uh, And those are interesting people to talk to because they go like George Orwell on this, right? Um, You know, there are lots and lots of people who would not necessarily go personally defend Billy Raymond Counterman. They wouldn't even say, oh, this speech is so valuable in the discourse of this world. But they would say, look, As a principle, we can't just have the government decide when some random online message is threatening and then send someone to prison for it. That's a very slippery slope. These advocates would say, if you're a victim of these messages, maybe you take out a restraining order or do some other thing, but you don't send someone to prison for simply writing a message, Hmm. that that's where the slippery slope or well thing is, and that that would lead to maybe policing how we criticize politicians. So that they're arguing there are other avenues that the victim might have taken. Right. What, what stands out to you about this case? You know, I just think it's a very tough call. You know, you talk to CW's personal attorney, a guy who used to be a federal judge, is now an attorney pushing for victims' rights. And he'd say that you know, if we start to protect this kind of speech, it's going to be a less safe place to live. Here is her attorney, Paul Cassell. Yeah, the question is really, what kind of a society do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a society where, for example, women singers like CW can be threatened by someone like uh, Counterman and there's no way for the criminal justice system to stop that? Now, on the other hand, some of the Orwellian people would say, why in the world do we trust police or a random DA investigator to decide this is speech that is unsafe and I think this person needs to go to prison? And I actually think that's a decent point, you know. I also make a point that there have been very inconsistent rulings so far on what quote unquote fighting speech is protected by the First Amendment and which, what isn't fighting speech. So I think SCOTUS saw this case as ripe to make a final call on what is threatening speech. They want to settle that. I think they want to settle uh-huh. that. I mean, as we know, sometimes we think they're going to go settle something and they sometimes don't. So I guess there's a chance they don't here. But I think there's a reason they took this lower court case. Yeah, just fascinating that it comes out of Arapahoe County. Well, what's next? Arguments, I guess. Yeah, the big thing will be the oral arguments. Obviously, there's a lot of legal filings between now and then. Those oral arguments are going to be the third week of April in Washington, D.C. And then we'll wait for the court to rule, likely in May or June. And it'll be one of those big rulings we wait on. You know, this is the second pure Colorado case this high court has taken on this term. Both dealing with aspects of speech, by the way. Yeah. And you've been covering both of them. Allison, thanks so much. Thanks. Allison Sherry is on CPR's justice team. And we'll be back in just a bit with a first class interview about the post office. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Would you adopt an older dog, one with cancer in less than a year to live? A Grand Junction couple did just that. Each little thing is so precious and so cute. There you go. We feel like new parents. <laughs> a storybook ending can be hard to find for older, sick dogs. But Bendu brought the gift of healing to his new owners. The Happy Family Story and Pictures are at CPR.org. 
There's frustration with the post office in places like Castle Rock, Silverton, and Dillon. As we've reported, it's gotten so bad that Colorado's congressional delegation is pressing for solutions. It made us think about the Postal Service's historic ups and downs since its inception in the 1800s. CU Denver historian Cameron Blevins is author of Paper Trails, The U.S. Post, and The Making of the American West. Cameron, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Ryan. You describe the early Postal Service in the West as a gossamer network. And I I love that word gossamer, delicate, fine, ephemeral, kind of conjures up spider webs or angels' wings. And yet you call this expansion both gossamer and rapid and far-reaching and a colonizing force. That sounds like a paradox to me. How can something be uh, delicate, fine, ephemeral, and so transformational? It's a great question, Ryan. Uh, actually, I'm going to turn around and ask you a question. Uh, okay. How often do you go to your local post office? I go quite a bit because I'm a postcard writer. Oh, a postcard connoisseur. Okay. So I need to buy postcard stamps, forever yeah. stamps, with some frequency. So I'm assuming when you go to the post office, this is a standalone building. There's staffed by USPS employees wearing uniforms. Um, and that did not look anything like the U.S. postal system in the 1800s. So the experience of going to your local post office uh, for the vast majority of people, if you did not live in a major city, involved going to what was often your general store down the street, and the store owner would pass out letters across the counter. And this is what I mean by a gossamer network in the sense that it was a much more lightweight kind of infrastructure. But because of that, it allowed the overall network to expand really, really rapidly across the Western United States and the country uh, at large. And your book, Paper Trails, the U.S. Post and the Making of the American West, is filled with maps that show the evolution of the post office over time. And I think it very notably reveals who did not have service and who was underrepresented. We'll talk about that in a bit. But one famous mail service from the 19th century West was the Pony Express. But you write that it is largely based in myth. And it was around for less than two years. That was really an epiphany for me. Can you explain that? It's actually a fascinating topic in that I think it is probably one of the most successful brand names in American history. The fact that all of us know about this, you know, 160 years after the fact. And what's fascinating to me is that that doesn't necessarily line up with the reality or impact of the service at the time. So this was a private uh, business venture that was started right before the Civil War. And the idea was they would operate uh, a mail route across the central United States, across the plains and mountains to connect California to the eastern United States, and then use a system of relay stations with horse riders. It would cut the mail time in half, roughly, Uh, and speed up service. The problem was that this was phenomenally expensive, right? You needed 100 horses, relay riders, stations, feed, all sorts of stuff. And so they had to correspondingly charge a phenomenally large amount of money for each letter. So in today's uh, today's equivalent money would be somewhere between 100 and $150 to send a letter, anywhere from 10 to 50 times more expensive than a normal letter that was sent via uh, the U.S. Postal Channel at the time. Right. And so it was financially speaking, it was a disaster. They just kind of hemorrhaged money right and left uh, and eventually were superseded by the telegraph line and kind of shut down. 
Um, they did carry military uh, information, government information that connected California to the East during this period of secession and the Civil War. So it was important in that regard. But for most average Americans, you would never send anything via the Pony Express. Okay. Uh, but it sounds like they had really good PR because uh, the, the name Pony Express seems to reverberate. Did a lot of mail get lost or waylaid in the early days? Uh, less than you would expect. I think one thing that I was surprised at in doing a lot of research uh, was that the U.S. Post in the 1800s was both faster and more efficient than one would expect, given the fact that there, you know, there were no cars, there were no planes, anything like that. Um, but it's also difficult to measure because, much like today, people like to complain. So if things did get lost, they're going to probably mention it. Whereas if you think about the billions of letters that are going through the mail each year successfully, no one's necessarily going to remark on that. Back to the idea of myths. The story of the early post office really does run counter to another powerful Western narrative of the self-reliant cowboy and the pioneer of the Wild West. It's really more of a big government story, isn't it? Absolutely. Um so I think most of us, myself included, grew up on Hollywood Westerns, uh, and the pop culture idea of the West is filled with cowboys and Indians, with uh, covered bonnets and covered wagons moving westward. You don't necessarily see a lot of government officials or agents in that story. But and if and you, if look you, if you at, do, they're always kind of bumbling. Oh, bumbling, or maybe know. even like evil, you know, uh-huh. kind of coming in to like take their land or something. Um, But the real story of the West in the 1800s and really through the 1900s as well is a story of big government. And so that ranges from everything from uh, the U.S. Army, the military, occupying, conquering the West, waging war against native tribes, uh, all the way up through defense contracts today. Right. It really is a story of big government. And what I discovered was that the U.S. Post was at the heart of this story in the 1800s. Do I recall correctly um, I know that we have listeners who probably have memorized it verbatim, but is the post office spelled out in the Constitution? Uh, so the U.S. Post really does stretch back to the very beginning of the country's origins. And one of the first major pieces of legislation that the new nation passes is to set up the postal system. So okay. the U.S. Post does appear in the Constitution, but it doesn't really establish the um, the administrative organization to implement it. That comes uh, a couple years later but it immediately is one of the first things that Congress ends up doing. Professor, the U.S. Post's Western expansion really did go hand in hand with violence against indigenous people and dispossession of their lands. Uh, You say the U.S. Post didn't cause settler expansion, but it did make it easier. I wonder how it was for you to come to terms with that aspect of this history. So to maybe explain a little bit more about what, what I mean by, by that is um, that the U.S. Post functioned as a network that was kind of everywhere in the United States. It was oftentimes one of the first government institutions to appear on the ground as settlers moved into new places. And overwhelmingly in the West, those new, new places were on stolen indigenous land. Um, so if you want to take the example of Colorado, for instance, uh, Colorado becomes a federal territory and 1861. At that point, uh, most of Western Colorado was occupied and uh, basically legally owned by groups of Ute Native people. And over the course of the 1860s, white settlers continued to encroach on their land and government officials then extract a series of sessions from them via treaties 
to take uh, millions of acres of land in western Colorado. And in 1873, the so-called Bruno Agreement cedes 3.7 million acres of land in what's today southwestern Colorado, the San Juan Mountains. There's been a series of gold strikes at the time, so white prospectors are kind of uh, streaming onto this land illegally. The government forces uh, you people to cede this land. And within literally uh, a month or two, the U.S. Post opens up its first post office there. As you say, it's often the first sign in, a, in an established community of those white settlers. Exactly. Three years later, there's 20 post offices up and running. And I think it's hard to convey just how remote and inaccessible this part of the country was at the time. Southwestern Colorado, even if you go there today, right? It's mountainous. Uh, it's hard to get to in the 1870s, even more so. Despite that, right, thousands of white prospectors are able to stream into this part of the, of the state uh, and then also immediately have access to the mail system that connects them to the wider world so they can stay connected with family or friends. And just as importantly, they can also send news back to places like Denver about new mining strikes, further fueling more prospectors coming into this part of the country. That wouldn't have been possible as easily and as quickly without something like the U.S. Post and its ability to expand into these really distant places. The mail system is a form of power, and it's political power as well. I mean, I think about how political literature is sent and how that would have connected folks with Washington. And we can't underestimate that power early on. For sure. Uh, so again, thinking about just how distant a lot of these places are, but you know, despite the fact that you might be living... Um, dozens of miles away from a major town, you can still get the mail once or twice a week. And that's going to allow you to keep up to date with, you know, Democrat and Republican wrangling in Washington, the latest election news. Think about how plugged in we are today. Americans in the 1800s also cared a lot about politics. And the mail was what allowed them uh, to stay connected to these political systems, too. But as the postal system expanded, you write... Indigenous people were not well served by it. Maps in your book show how few post offices existed on reservations and native lands to serve native people. Do you see that reverberate today? It's a really telling pattern from the time. Um, if you look at a map of the U.S. postal system in the 1800s, it's this really, really dense system. There's post offices every kind of 10 miles or so. But as soon as you run up against the borders of a government-run Indian reservation starting around the 1870s, that coverage basically grinds to a halt. And you'd have a post office at an Indian agency or an army fort. Um, Native people still were able to use the mail despite that lack of access. But that is a kind of uh, general lack of access in government services that you do continue to see today on a lot of uh, reservations. Historian Cameron Blevins is our guest, author of Paper Trails, about how the Postal Service came to be. We spoke in July of 2021, and we're listening back as some rural Colorado communities struggle with staffing and delivery. Still to come, one family's life through letters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you're looking for information on how to support Colorado Public Radio through a gift, donation, or sponsorship... Or if you need to update or change your membership details, you can find an answer on the support page at CPR.org. We've reported on the recent struggles of the Postal Service to deliver mail on time in communities from Castle Rock to Payton. 
The agency's history is a complicated one, as you learn reading Paper Trails, the U.S. Post and the Making of the American West. Its author is CU Denver historian Cameron Blevins. I I loved, in reading this book, realizing that historians so often rely on letters. I mean, epistolary relationships so often drive the historical narratives that we know. And remarkably little has been written about the conveyance of those letters, getting them in the mail. So you're doing a kind of almost a meta history in some ways. Will you reflect on why you think there's been so little written about the post office? Um, I suppose in comparison to how much is written about letters themselves. I think when things are everywhere, you tend to take them for granted, right? Um, Think about the number of times you pull out your cell phone today and send a text message uh, without any kind of understanding, again, myself included, or thinking about what's the infrastructure that allows those typed words to transmit, you know, halfway across the country to a friend, let's say. And I think that's the same way in the 1800s. The the U.S. Post was everywhere. Americans took it for granted. They were able to send mail, uh, postcards, letters, newspapers all across the country. And uh, remarkably, little of them kind of stopped to reflect on that. I think that carries through to historians looking at their letters as well. We're much more interested in the content of those letters rather than thinking about how did they get from, say, New York to Denver. Lest you hear this conversation and think that this book is purely processy, I'll disabuse you of that notion because there are a lot of people in these pages and a lot of personal stories. You wanted to bring to life the early post office through families. Tell us about someone you encountered, a historical figure, who, um, you know, it kind of illustrates the history you're trying to tell. It's an interesting uh Uh, way of looking at these large systems, right? So thinking about a a network that encompasses tens of thousands of post offices, what I realized was you can't understand what it means, its historical significance, without zooming down to the ground level. Uh, So in my case, I ended up following the story of four orphans, uh, the Curtis family, who were born in Ohio, kind of scattered to different family members, but eventually all of them ended up migrating to the Western United States. And there's a surviving archive of letters that they exchanged over about four decades. And reading through those letters, you start to understand not just the content, right, where they're sharing news about family, friends, uh, cousins, but really the fact that no matter where they move, they're able to stay connected to each other. And so the youngest one, uh, Benjamin Curtis, ends up in the backwoods of Arizona trying to start a ranch, right? He's in the middle of nowhere. But despite that fact, He's able to send a letter to his two older sisters in San Francisco, hundreds of miles away, uh, telling them about the birth of their niece, and then receive uh, receive gifts from them in exchange through the mail that arrives in about five days. Um, and also able to subscribe to half a dozen newspapers from across the country, magazines, right? So despite the fact that he is living in the middle of nowhere in the 1880s, he is incredibly connected to the wider world. Now, home delivery was not always a part of the Postal Service. We take that for granted, I think, today. Right. Uh, Through the end of the 1800s, again, if you were not living in a city, you would have to walk to your local post office to get your mail. And that partially explains why there are just so many post offices in the United States. Uh, Starting around the turn of the the 1900s, you saw the rise of rural free delivery. This completely changed the system. This is the modern system we have today where a mail carrier will go to your doorstep and deliver letters, newspapers, 
Um, and so that starts to usher in again a more modern uh, system of mail delivery that we have today. Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ryan. Cameron Blevins is an associate history professor at CU Denver. In 2021, we discussed his book, Paper Trails, the U.S. Post and the Making of the American West. Orchestral music by African-American composers hasn't traditionally gotten its due, but a pair of Colorado music groups aims to change that with concerts this week. Voices of the African Diaspora is a collaboration between the Chamber Orchestra of the Springs and Art Song Colorado. The program features rarely performed works, including an overture by Scott Joplin, a spiritual, and a piece that sets the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to music. What we're just hearing now is from composer Zenobia Powell Perry. The show is set for Thursday in Colorado Springs, then Saturday in Denver. Let's hear another highlight from last year's program, a world premiere rap by Andre Meyer, titled Double Negative. Poco a poco by way of human beings living in heaven's core We find a way to soar like we never did But still I'm taking flight within the double negative By this I mean to say that when I see myself walking on the world Or talking with a girl, stumble and fall I wonder why I ever even make the effort at all I look upon this moment with grace Find the place within my heart to start anew and set a slower pace So I can keep my stamina up Voices of the African Diaspora, Thursday in Colorado Springs, Saturday in Denver. For a rundown of concerts celebrating Black History Month, head to CPRclassical.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters on listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.